Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by author Nicola Pierce. A native of Dublin, Nicola has built up a reputation for high-quality historical fiction. Since her first novel, Spirit of the Titanic, was published, Nicola has managed to create tales that blend beautifully between fact and fiction while keeping a firm eye on historical accuracy. Her most recent novel, Chasing Ghosts, is a tale of a doomed Arctic expedition and a child lost between the living and the dead who holds a secret that only her brothers and sisters believe. I was really looking forward to chatting with Nicola and we have a rich conversation that goes many places. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Nicola, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. I'm delighted to be here. Mm, Is it because you're just like me or is it just because you love being on podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done many podcasts, actually. Really? Because the schools have closed Mm. and it's the summer holidays, this is the first event now I've done for a few months. So I'm delighted to get back in action. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, podcasting's a bit of fun for everybody involved. I think it's kind of a bit more relaxed than doing radio and TV and stuff like that, isn't it? Yeah. You don't have to spend eight hours in the green room. Uh, I just, <laughs> I have to make a confession before we start, okay? Right. Okay. Now there's evidence, unfortunately, so I thought I'd set it up. Um, I, I, uh, I did a, a podcast there when I first first started off with this series. Um, with an author, Kathy Hoya, and uh, she's a German English um author historian. She did a pod, She did a book on the uh the history of the German Empire, you know, and it's a bit of a yeah. thing for me. Uh, I've always been interested in kind of modern history, and I did say to her in that podcast, you know, we were discussing the the way she wrote the book and that it was done in a kind of a dramatized way and I did say in that podcast that I wasn't a fan of these books where you have you know novels set in a real historical situation yeah. so I'm apologizing in advance right so I what happened was then I bumped into a, a mutual friend of ours Don Bean uh, from Woodbine Books there in Kilcullen Ireland oh, and yeah. she yes. said to me you need to read this book and I'm like Don I'm not really a fan of these which I'm telling you you need to read it and I was like, OK, OK, I read it. So she's changed my mind. So that's why I, I said, OK, I have to get you back on now and have a chat and confess that to you. So I'm putting my, I'm putting my cards on the table now. You've 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 opened up my eyes. I appreciate that, your honesty. Yeah, yeah. No, it's was, it was really good, actually. And I sat down and read it on my holidays. So I really had time to read it. Um, yeah, it was it was a perfect book. The unfortunate thing was I'm really a, I'm a slow reader. Well, I used to yeah. be a slow reader, but since I've been doing this podcast, I've kind of developed this speed reading technique. So I was finished it after the first two days and I was in France. And do you think I could get another book in English? Not a hope. <laughs> and, and my wife had said to me, that's a good book. You're going to fly through that. And I went, no, no, it'll take me a week to read it. You know what I'm like? But no, I didn't. I was through it in two days. So it gave me a chance to take loads of notes and, you know, do that sort of thing. So um, so here we are. Yes, uh, you've done yeah. this brilliant book called Chasing Ghosts, which is an Arctic adventure. And of course, it's set in a real historical uh, situation. It was the uh, the story of the two ships, HMS Erebus and Terror, who were lost and found yeah. eventually a good few years later. They were trying to find the Northwest Passage, which is the route between Greenland and uh, the Alaskan coast. So it's an excellent story, I have to say. Congratulations on it. It's really brilliant. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it, the, you know, I had finished my fifth novel, which was around the Battle of the Boyne, 1690, Kings of the Boyne, and I wasn't sure what to do next. 
And thank to go- thank goodness, it was the curator of Dundalk Museum contacted me and asked me to come up for a meeting. So I never met him. I didn't even know there was a museum in Dundalk. And I got the bus up, had no idea what, what was going to come about. And he just said to me, um, have you ever heard of Francis McClintock? I said, absolutely not, no. And he said, well, um, we just, we have stuff, stuff belonging to him here in the museum. Nobody knows it's here. I'm, I'm surrounded by schools and none, I don't never hear of schools want to come and visit. And uh, I think students should know about McClintock. He said, would you consider writing a book about him? So I had to go home and do some research. And Francis McClintock, um, sadly, was not his life was not that interesting for a novel, except that I found out he was involved in a search for two ships that had left England in 1845 and went missing. And that's the for me, that was the most um, exciting thing. Uh, so this was the doomed John Franklin expedition to the Arctic, 130 men on board two gorgeous w- warships that had been fitted out, kitted out for this um, adventure that could not fail, they thought. And uh, 130 men were never seen again. And this is how uh, this novel Chasing Those happened about. Um, so it's all thanks to the creator of Dundalk Museum. Brilliant. And I think the best ideas generally just fall into my lap unexpectedly, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, um, I we can we might as well say it now. There is a TV series called Terror, which explores yeah, this story as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I was just going to say it's not something that the kids could sit down to. It's a psychological horror, really, because it deals yeah. with spirituality rather than, say, the usual blood and guts gore that you get in some movies. So you're, yeah. you're kind of you're, the book, the actual story comes at it from a completely different angle. So what was nice about it when I first uh, decided to read this book, I was a bit weary of that because I had seen the terror. And I yeah. said to myself, why haven't I not heard of this story before? And this is such a case that happens all the time. But when I did see that sh- TV show, I was, you know, I was, I was fascinated by the whole idea of it. That because they, they yeah. kind of, they, they were just on the verge of kind of the modern world of what we know now. But they were still tracing themselves back to the past of old way, old ways are done. And when yeah. I read your book, what I liked about it was, and I'm, I don't want to go into too much detail, obviously, because we want people to actually get it and read it. Yeah. Um, but what I liked about it was that you didn't try and, well, the characters were very similar to what you, what was in the movie, sorry, in the TV show. But at the same yeah. time, you explored them differently. You know, and yeah. that was that. Do you aware that that TV show was going was on when you were writing the book, or did, did had you no idea? Yeah, no, I was aware of it. I hadn't read that. I don't read novels when I'm writing a novel about something. I won't read a novel about it. Mm-hmm. So that show was based on a novel by Dan Simmons, is it? I yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's Simmons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't get the show. Everyone kept telling me you need to watch this. Uh, but it was on show in America and we just didn't have the station. Yeah. So not until was it like only this year, actually it was during lockdown. Finally, it came on to, I think we got Apple or something like that. And I was able to watch the series and it blew me away. And it was just so atmospheric. Um, and that's, I suppose, when you're approaching the John Franklin, the doomed expedition, we have these two ships. We have 130 men. And for really, you know, it's, it's still open today. What happened? How come? They all died and none of them ever got home again. So there's still a lot of questions, mostly because no paperwork was ever found. That's the thing, yeah. So the ships then were found in 2016. Airbus was found first and then Terror was found, the second ship, I think, in 2018. And they're excavating them now in Canada. 
they're hoping to find diaries or journals. They really, really hope they found, you know, one of the desk of the offices, one of my favourites, Francis Crozier, was second in command on this exhibition. He's from Bambridge, an Irishman. And we just don't have his voice at all. We have a, a, the last couple of letters he sent before they disappeared. And uh, so they're really hoping to find his diaries or journals. They have his desk, but they have to very, very carefully unlock it and all the rest. But it allowed me as a writer to imagine up his diaries because I wanted to set up two stories that were happening which was the guys in the Arctic and, you know, try and get the reader into the Arctic with them. And I found um, the diary was, I loved writing because I love reading diaries. So to me, that was, I wrote that very quickly, imagining what was like and imagining Crozier's diary. And when you're writing a diary, of course, it means you can just choose what days you want to cover. So it meant I wasn't like going back and trying to tell the whole story every single day, what happened for years, you know, the maybe two years before he finally died too. So I could pick and choose the days I wanted to have. But alongside this, then we have this wonderful ghost story that is meant to be true, which is when the ships went missing about two years later, a four year old died in dairy of a fever. And her, when she was buried, her sister and brother, the sister was nine, the brother was seven. They said to their mom and dad, they could still see her around the house. And uh, there was an aunt living with them. And I think there was trouble believing in the children, of course. And the aunt just said, because it was in all the newspapers, where has John Franklin, Francis Crozier, where are they? Where are their ships? We don't know where to look for them. That was in the newspapers. And the aunt said, why don't you ask your sister where the ships are? So we get this amazing uh, story where her father actually had to contact John Franklin's wife, Jane Franklin, who was listening to all sorts taken. She was so desperate for information. Yeah. She was in connection with all sorts of mediums and spiritualists. And she actually met um, with uh, Louisa uh, Coppin. Louisa was the girl that died. She met with uh, Captain Coppin about 30 times and he was trans uh, giving messages from his daughter uh, via her sister and brother. So I tried to find a way then to bring these two stories together in the novel. Yeah, it was really well done, you know, because you kept them apart for such a period of time. And then towards the end, you gradually brought it in. And I felt yeah. like I was onto little streams right. coming through to this final piece where they merged and became a river. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the inspiration that you get. Now, you're originally from Tala. Uh, in Dublin, yeah. which is a huge area, you know, to anybody who's not living in Ireland, it's 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 it started off as a very small little village just in the uh, kind of south southwest of our, of Dublin, and over the last say 30, 40 years, it's begun to become a really big suburban district of Dublin. So all sorts of talent. We're getting you know wonderful people coming out there. Only last week in the European uh, Championships in Athletics, yeah. we had two great runners who are from the Tala Running Club. So it's always had the potential to produce. Um, uh, you know, a, a wide array of talent. But you're you're near, you're around the same generation as I am. So you've grown up early in Tallow when Tallow was quite yeah. small. So what was life like in school? Did you did you always want to write or was that always in you or was just it's just something that just came out of nowhere? I was a reader from very early and it was great because my mum and dad weren't into books, weren't into reading. But for some reason, my mother brought us down. When we were, I was the eldest of four girls. So she enrolled me in Tala Library, which back in the 1970s was just a tiny green prefab. And she enrolled me there quite early because we also didn't have money to buy books. 
Um, so the library was just, uh, I just fell in love with reading from a, like from four and five years of age. And uh, relatives, I think, were encouraged to give us books, too. So I remember when I was about six or seven, I had a large collection, a shelf of books. And mom and my mom and dad were in a let us go to bed and let us read for an hour. I remember going to stay in my cousin's house and the aunt, my aunt had said, yes, yes, you can read. And uh, the light was left on for just five minutes. I was in absolute shock. <laughs> five minutes later, just like, I'm sorry, I'm just starting. So I realized how lucky I was. And um, my parents who weren't much into books, were very much into education. And my mother just realized books are education. So uh, we were always encouraged. And I just, to me, writing and reading was just part of loving books. So it became totally instinctive and natural for me, a reader, to want to write. And I guess the book that would have maybe brought it all together was one of my all-time favorite books, Little Women. So we have four sisters. I was one of four girls. And this is where I learned about this job of being a writer. Jo March, the second sister, uh, realizes that she can help her family. So the, the, the book Little Women is set during the uh, time of the American Civil War, late 1880s uh, or 1860s, I should say. And um, the family are poor and in dire straits. And she realizes that she can send off stories to magazines and uh, earn money. So I think probably from that moment on, I wanted to be Joe March. I wanted to be a writer. What was the process there? You obviously went to college. I think you were in Terry New York College. Was your writing encouraged at that point by other people or was it just something you had to push yourself all the time? I remember when my first novel came out, Spirit of the Titanic, and I was going to visit my mom and dad and I was walking down the street and a neighbour came out and said, your, your dream came true. And I was like, what? She said, your dream came true. You became a writer. I, she had to remind me, she said that I used to tell people when I was very young, I wanted to be a writer. I have no memory of this, you know, and I did keep diaries. I was, you know, I have journals, yeah. actually I have journals upstairs from when I was six. So I would have said I wanted to be a writer, whether I actually believed it was going to happen. So I think I thought and I went into school, I went to um, presentation secondary and presentation primary in Terenure. Uh, but I didn't, I wasn't a standout at all. Um, I wasn't particularly good at anything, but I, I did love English and history, uh, but I was, certainly was not like getting A's or anything like that. And then I ended up doing lots of shop work and office work for years and years. Yeah, as we all and did. Then I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I realized um, I had this low, I just always wanted to go to college. And at the time, I don't know if you remember, um, the leave insert you had to get the corporation grant um, if you didn't have money. If your family wasn't wealthy, you had to do this extra lot. The matrix, I think it was, was, I didn't get enough. So we ended up working in shops and all the rest. And then, oh gosh, I think about 20 years ago, I discovered the BA modular degree in UCD, which was going and doing your degree at nighttime. So you could go in after your day's work. And that was, uh, I remember sitting in UCD in the lecture hall and my first English lecture about to start that I absolutely could not believe I was finally here. Yeah, you were pinching yourself at that point. Oh, yeah. And also then the, the lecture started. I didn't understand one word of what was said. and went into a blind panic. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> went back the following week. <laughs> and of course, at that time, it's not, like, not a long time ago. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's 20 years ago for most yeah. people. It's, it's quite, uh, you know, people remember a lot about that time. But there wasn't as much, uh, say, you know, research material. You couldn't go onto Wikipedia, for example. It was yeah. it was only like this crazy little thing that had, you know, uh, the history of Cyprus or something on it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was it, the information that was available to you was still quite difficult then, wasn't it? It was kind of the end of that, wasn't it, really? 
Yeah, absolutely. When I'm researching a book now, I never, ever stop being thankful for the fact that I can just stick in something into Google or I'm on my phone and I just think of an idea and I Google something about it. You know, I mean, it was to to write an essay 20 years ago. You did a lot of heavy reading and you just had to pray that the book had a good index that you could find out. No, that's true. Yeah. But also, uh, Nicola, it's good, though. I think a good thing is that Irish... Uh, investment in libraries is very good I think over the last 10 or 15 years yeah you know you can you can order a book that's not even in your library now I know that's common around the world but in Ireland you know 20 years ago when they started to do that that was a really big thing wasn't it I mean allowed you because like when I was growing up as a child we actually had the most advanced library in Ireland because I lived in Ballyfermot and senior college there where there was a college uh, second level college that was built in the late 70s early 80s and they had the most advanced library in Ireland at the time and it was kind of model going forward for, uh, for libraries in Ireland but still you could only get the books that were in that library yeah and yeah, you know yeah. to have the access you know early before say wikipedia and before they google we could google things to be able to know that you could go up to your your library and say i'm looking for a book on x person and they say oh yeah we have that in their port leash library it's brilliant and it yes. still works really well yes. today doesn't it absolutely information is just so much more widely available and that's a really really good thing you know, and, uh, you know, and I can't knock, tech- sometimes I think I'm not into technology, you know, but I can't knock us, you know, with so much information just at our fingertips and we can get books ordered just like that and then, or, you know, can buy them and they'll arrive and uh, it's just incredible for a reader. You know, some people worry that books are going out of fashion and all the rest. I think, you know, technology is helping to um, make it easier to get, you get your hands on books, uh, you know, and uh, you're aware now of how many books are being published and that. If you're reading a book you really enjoy, all you do is click and you see what else the writer has done or you're reading a topic, click, and then you'll see how many books are on the topic. So, in fact, I think books are being helped by the technology today. Yeah, it's true because, I mean, a lot of people thought that we would lose, say, for example, uh, you know, vinyl. Uh, when CDs yeah. came out and then people realized that the, the one big problem with CDs was that you couldn't invest in your collection you know I remember yeah. as a child when I used to go and I was talking to Majura about this actually from Ultravox is that when you Ooh. had you had your record collection you could pull it out and it was like a you know yeah. an actual big picture you could show somebody and say oh well, I, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and then yeah. now cds when cds came out that kind of didn't have the same impact and then when everything went on to digital on mp3s it was even worse so people went back to vinyl and yeah. i think it's the same with books because yes. my, as my daughter she's a podcast and the one rule we do have when we are going to review a book is that we actually have to review the actual uh, the written version the sorry the published version yeah. the paper version yeah. no 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 stuff sent to us by pdfs no stuff sent to us by you know yeah. any of the reading uh, module systems nothing like that it has to be a book that Lydia can have in her hand and it makes such a difference to her because she gets yeah. the images i remember like you know when you first read a book and i'm sure for you it's still important the image on the front is so important it gets you into the mindset doesn't it Definitely. I mean, they say you can't judge a book by a cover, but I mean, I'm browsing and I see something attractive. I want it. <laughs> or at least I will pick it up and read it. Um, you know, I just, you know, this is my, I've got books everywhere in the house. I mean, I'm sitting in my tiny kitchen uh, and I know nobody else is going to be able to see it, but these are all the books I've yet to read. And I keep buying, 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 you know, and they're just all around me. Uh, and my every room is like that. 
And I couldn't be in a house that doesn't have books. It's the first thing I look for when I'm visiting someone's house or I see a house on television and kind of looking at, the, you know, they got bookshelves. Yeah. Um, books are just a huge part of my life. I mean, I sit here and they calm me. I, I could just sit and stare at them, actually, and I find it very calming. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing is, like, our sitting room is just one big wall of books and the TV's in yes. the middle of it. And actually, my wife's Polish, and that's a very kind of Eastern European design to do. Um, right. Any Polish house I've gone into, it's always been the same. You Just a wall of books on shelves and then you might have tv somewhere so we decided when yes. we when we were, we were designing our sitting room said we okay we make it wall to wall on one wall with bookshelves and then we just put our tv in the middle of it and every yeah. irish person that came into there said oh god i don't really like that but then any yeah yeah really yeah but then when we had lads coming in one time they were bringing in a new set of sofa and stuff like that and they were all polish and they just looked at us and went ah that looks really that looks like home <laughs> so, oh wow yeah. that's and incredible it, yeah. but the unfortunate thing is it's getting full and there's books and books yeah. and books and books and like every now and again there has to be a culling and it's such it's a, it's a really awkward time because it's it's the, the kids are arguing i'm arguing no i haven't read that book yet are you <laughs> so, so for a few hours few hours it's like trying to kill your favorite puppy you know it's like you don't want to do it you know it's like you're going oh no i, I will read and then you know you make a really bad commitment by saying it's an 800 novel i will i'll read it by next week <laughs> so it's it's always that contentious thing with us and then you know Lydia she has a uh, she has a room now and she first thing she did was when she wanted to do up the room was that she wanted five bookshelves so she has these massive array of bookshelves now you know and uh, it's it's great you know books are amazing because as you say they're like little trophies or they may be yeah. little mementos or they're even little reminders yeah. don't forget to go back to that um, yeah. I wanted to ask you about historical fiction because that's what you really specialise in Yeah. and it's just like what I said earlier on I know we were joking about me saying oh, I don't really like that type of book and I was proven wrong the pros and cons of, of historical fiction, is there any? I mean, when you're, when you're writing, say, a book like, say, Chasing Ghosts, are you aware of the historical sense of it? Or do you kind of say, I want to take a few liberties on that? No, I'm very, uh, very aware. I mean, I suppose it's a pro and a con. The thing about writing historical fiction is before I start writing a story, I will generally have spent about, at the very least, three months just purely researching and uh, it becomes a very kind of tense, you know, between my editor and me, because she will, you know, it's the whole thing. We can't get out and wrong because it'll be picked out. And I remember my novel, City of Faith, uh, was the second one that I wrote. And it's about the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, where Russia, say, today in World War II initially anyway. Um, and I remember I got a wonderful review in an online magazine and uh, the PR girl sent it to me and went, hey, great, this is a great review. But then right at the end of the review, the guy writes, such a pity, yeah, great novel, love Bob, such a pity. Um, she has a character wearing a watch in Russia in 1941, uh, 42. So that's the worst thing about historical fiction. You will have experts. <laughs> that's very smart. <laughs> oh, I, thought know, you gonna, I thought you were going to get a year wrong or a month wrong even, but <laughs> wearing no. a watch, Well, wow. I mean, that's my fear yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every topic i write about you know i've written about the titanic uh, twice and there are loads countless facebook pages about the titanic a lot of them are american and people are very passionate and very fiercely territorial and will not take anyone um you know i remember watching one little person wanting to join i can't remember what nationality they were but they absolutely 
Oh my goodness, they raised the, the whole thing about um wasn't it not wasn't it the Olympic that actually sank? It wasn't the Titanic. Oh my goodness, he the poor little thing was shot down completely. Okay. <laughs> um you have all these academics, Titanic academics. And you know, that's in everything that I write about, uh just this fear that you'll get something wrong or you'll offend the the passionate fans, you know, that they they will take against us. When you're researching them, do you have a particular, um, you know, method of research? Uh, does it start like with every book? Does it start the same way, or does the research have to be different for each book? No, generally, what I do is, soon as I realize what story I'm going to write, what particular episode, historical episode, I spend fortune on books, and I will trail around in search of any type of books. Particularly love if I can get my hands on journals and diaries from that time, and that's a real bonus. After that, I will uh, look for music, at so I can play it, get myself there. After that, I will look for paintings, drawings. I'll print them out and put them on the wall around me. And my whole thing is to completely absorb myself in the year and the location I'm writing about. So my thing is, you know, people ask me when you're writing a book, what's the most important thing? And some writers will say the characters. Some writers will say the story. I'll say atmosphere. If I believe that I'm on the Titanic or I'm in the Arctic in 1845, and if I absolutely believe that I am there and I'm having dreams about this thing at nighttime, then hopefully then that means I'm got, I've got the reader there with me or I'm able to get the reader there with me. So that's why I just completely surround myself with the topic, uh, the location and the time and the music and the culture as much as I can. Yeah. And the thing is, here's a surprise for you, right? I didn't do my research on the demographics of your book, who you were actually supposed to be writing these books for. And I had no idea that they were for young readers and adults. And I thought yeah. that was a positive for me because yeah, absolutely, actually, yes. yeah. I think if somebody had said to me, this is a children's book, I might have went in at it. But no one gave me anything. Don deliberately said nothing to me. She said, just read it. You'll like it. I'm telling you. I read it and I found that your book has you know moved beyond that because i have read some young readers books for you know with lydia and stuff like that and yeah. obviously you know you have that there's something in your brain that tells you okay this is probably not the way you would read an adult's book the kind of guideline yeah. so to speak but with this book i did not get that and it was only later on that i found out after like it was nearly with 10 pages to go i kind of went oh That's right. a fantastic compliment so, i love hearing that yeah but it was yeah. my next question actually do you deliberately try and bridge the gap between young readers and adults or do you just aim the book for young readers and hope that you know that the, the adults will like it as well i don't think i think about a specific reader i do hope that it'll, it'll appeal to all ages i mean you know i get teachers writing to me uh, will you come in and talk to our school what age is your book for? And I'll generally say, oh, 10 years of age and upwards. And I've gone into secondary schools to talk about the books. I've gone into colleges and I've done festivals talking to adults. I mean, what I write about is stuff that actually happened. So I think, you know, um, that that surely will appeal to anybody. Because I, while I love about historical fiction, one of the big pros is that I do get into schools and I'll have children, children coming up and saying to me, I don't like books. I don't like reading, but I love reading about the Titanic. You know, so you've got kids that might mean into English but they love history yeah and they don't didn't even realize they loved history until they you know it's kind of they're listening to me and they realize wow I do actually like the stuff from years ago um so uh, that that's one of the the fantastic things about doing what I do that I get to you know let's say to history history teachers and English teachers and you know I'll catch somebody in between but certainly like I mean, I suppose like half me is kind of thinking the book will be reviewed by adult journalists uh, and people like yourself. And I do that kind of never kind of forget that. 
Um, but I, I and sometimes I get into trouble. You know, my editor might say, um, you know, he, you know, make sure this appeals also to 10 year olds. Yeah. And they used to years ago, they did say to me, um, we don't know if you have enough uh, children's children's characters. But I find if the character really comes to life, you know, I wrote about the siege of Derry. And one of my favorite characters was an 80 year old man who was actually there at the time. And then going and visiting a children's book club in Trim, in Antonia's bookstore in Trim. And two fellas of about 10 years of age telling me their favorite character was the 80 year old man. That to me is like, wow, that's brilliant. You know, so it is all about being as honest as I can and creating this atmosphere, including as many details, but still making sure the book is readable like an adventure story as much as I can. And hopefully it will appeal and cross over. I mean, look at the boy in the striped pajamas. We all read that no matter how old we were. And that came out as a children's novel and then suddenly explodes and uh, everyone was reading it, you know, and same with the Harry Potter, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, you talk about older characters. I mean, Tolkien didn't give a hoot about that. When you look back on that, and I've asked my wife about that because she was very young when she first read Tolkien. Right. And Lydia's beginning to get into it now. She wants to see the movies and read the book. And the thing is, I know Lydia's going to be really excited about Gandalf more than anybody yeah. else because she loves yeah. Dumbledore. You know, she loves all the characters in the, in the Harry Potter universe. She's read all the Harry Potter books now and she's seen all yeah. the movies. But for her, I think one can't do without the other. So when you, you yeah. know, I, th- I, th- I think the great novelists or the great writers don't think about, oh, you know, will there enough children? If you're thinking to, if yeah. you're thinking into yeah. that, you're going to lose. You're going to, you know, you have to end up, you're going to yeah. slip up and you're going to end up writing a novel that you really don't want to write. It'd be feel, it'll feel contrived. I absolutely hate anything that smacks of trying to make me do something I don't want to do. <laughs> really, yeah. I just love getting just, you know, letting my characters and just going with what, you know, feels true to me. Um, and not restricting myself and not telling myself, I have to have this, I have to have that. Because I have been in the position, you know, for the Arctic, the chasing ghosts. I did have several people in my publishers when I was about to start saying, oh, you're going to need a young boy on the ships going to the Arctic because how else are you going to get children there? And I just absolutely no way. Francis Crozier was in his late 40s and doing his diaries. And as long as I work at making them engaging and vibrant, Anyone can read it because they're, you know, I just don't believe you have to continually write very young characters to get a child interested. I don't believe that at all. I had no problem reading about adults when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nicola, the balance is already there in the book anyway, because, I mean, when I was reading about the, the, you know, back in Derry, that was all about the children. The parents were just kind of in the background. They kind of they kind of interacted when it was required. But it was all about the two young, the two young children and her friends as well. You know, I mean, yeah. I if I'd have found that there was a child in the other side of that story, I probably would have been put off by that and said, oh, "Okay, there wouldn't have been a child." Yeah, you that's know, the I'm thing. Like, yeah, so make up somebody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked. You would have had too much yeah. of an imbalance, and you probably would have lost a lot of readers. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's. I think the balance in Chasing Ghosts is perfect. And yeah, you know, thank you, very you, much. you know, you've a cheerleader for every per, for every kind of demographic there. Even the character that John Franklin, I mean, in the terror, he was a bit darker and a bit more yeah. abrupt. Whereas in your version, he was kind of soft. The whole idea of that is that Franklin was the wrong man for the job because he's probably too yeah. soft. You do kind of explore that idea, but I felt that that Franklin was much more human than the Franklin in the terror. Again, the terror's version of him was just a. He was a kind of a, an interactive piece in the story. It was about him to a certain point. Yeah. Even though, you know, there was an issue what happened to that character. 
you didn't you didn't really miss him whereas i i missed him in your version yeah we well, see i'd read that franklin he just wasn't great with discipline because he wants to be liked yeah you want to be everybody's friend really, yeah really propelled my portrait of him that this man just wants to get on with everyone but he was 59 very overweight yeah uh, completely unfit hadn't done anything like this in years and the last time he'd done a big trip like this had ended in disaster he only lived because he ate his boots and <laughs> um, so you'd think this is a very flawed man who was desperately trying to repair his reputation that had been shot to bits he'd been over he was governor in australia and then all went wrong and Basically, he got fired from the job. So he and his wife were looking for uh, to repair his reputation in England. And then they hear about this big exhibition and they decide that he would be perfect, which he was far from perfect. But he was uh, meant to be a lovely man, generally very popular amongst the men. But I think um, uh, expeditions in, uh, out to the Arctic, you need somebody who's into big into discipline. You know? yeah, and, and it just wasn't, didn't seem to be. And I think with the, with the TV version of this story, what they needed to do was they needed to create some antagonistic situations and they put him in yeah. a position of kind of dark dominance where he was abrupt. He, he didn't listen to opinion. Yeah. He was he was kind of high and mighty. He saw himself as indestructible. Uh, whereas yeah. you didn't explore any of those really in your novel. And I was quite, quite relieved by that because, um, you know, I, I was on the edge of my seat correctly reading, watching that TV show. But at the same time, yeah. I wasn't enamoring myself to the characters in the same way I did when you when yeah. you wrote about them. Oh, so thank you. That's yeah, great you, you know, and I think that's important as we're getting back to the original topic, which I said to you there was about bridging the gap between young readers and adults. Is that you know adults are sometimes it's harder for adults to suspend disbelief, you know, than children. Yeah. But at the same time, you have to kind of I suppose um, give the characters a bit more depth that will suit all of your readers. Whereas yes. with television, I think you could just kind of go throw him in. He does. He's the bad guy. Get rid yeah, of him drama, drama, drama. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, just one last question I wanted to ask you about this type of concept is that I'm currently over <laughs> years and years late, as usual with me, I'm watching The Vikings on uh, TV, oh, yeah. you know, and it's, I didn't realise, first of all, it was six seasons. So that's kind of daunting. I thought it was only two or three. And somebody said, oh, no, there's six of them. I was like, oh, right. Because again, I, I just interviewed Mo Dunford. He was in that. So I said, um, I promised him, I said, look, I I'll, I'll, I will. I'll watch the whole lot. But what I found about that was I kind of was checking Wikipedia all the time and I kind of kept going, oh, that's so wrong. You know, the characters were like yeah. 200 years later than they are set in this period of time. And is, is, is that something that you would think about if you write the novel? Do you see that and say, oh, they wish they wouldn't do that as a novelist who writes that type of work? Or do you say to yourself, well, TV, there's a lot more, they can take a lot more liberties in television because they're probably appealing to a much wider audience. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, that they have the equivalent of what I have, an editor and a publisher, and uh, they're being prompted to, you know, they're, they're kind of just going for drama, and um, particularly when they're looking for, I suppose, as wide an audience and as fast as possible. It's got to prove itself as fast as possible. So I think they're going more for story, story, story. They amplify um, the, the myth, expense. do they? Sorry, they amplify the myth a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. And they need characters that an audience will identify and relate to as fast as possible. And I think there's so many shows out there and lockdown has really sent Netflix floor, uh, soaring. So the competition must be fierce. And to get everyone watching after a first episode, the, I'd say the pressure on the writers, uh, I wouldn't even like to think, you know. So screenwriting is something that you might go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't said that. Yeah, no, I would love, oh, I'd yeah. love... Um, 
I you see, okay, let's look at the Titanic. I meet very young children passionate about the Titanic, and there is not a Titanic film there for children. Uh, I remember going to school and they were showing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, but they were having to stop us and loop us before it got to Kate Winslet in the yeah. car being painted by <laughs> okay. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and I would, I, I don't know that I would want to sit down and write a film. Um, but I would absolutely love to see um, a film made of my novel Spirit of the Titanic, actually, or, or the, of any of my novels. Um, I think they all would work well. And uh, I'd love to see more historical fiction in children's films, you know, especially with this talk in schools of getting rid of history, which I think is so wrong. I meet so many children. And again, it's that thing of I'm not really good at English. I'm not really into reading. But, oh, I love these stories. They love history. They don't even realise it, that it's history that they love. Um, and I just wish that was reflected more in the cinema stuff too, that there'd be more historical fiction stuff for children. Yeah, it's weird because they kind of go through phases, don't you? I mean, the early nine, the yeah. early 2000s, it was all about ancient Greece and sort of, you know, Rome and all those kind of things. Yeah. Now that kind of, you know, went off and it's down. I always say to Ola, I don't like watching those TV adaptations because they're just nothing but blood and porn. They don't yeah. really, yes. you know, they don't mm. really kind of um, do it for me in that sense. I had a question for you, though. Supposing you were pushed now, say, to write a novel in the same way you've written Chasing Ghosts about, yeah. say, somebody like Cú Cullen, who is really based in Irish mythology. Would you take that on or would you say, OK, that's kind of now where I have to really kind of create the narrative or what, what, how would that work? Oh, that's a brilliant question. I suppose I just do what I normally do and hope to fall in love and... Um, you know, the, I have a novel coming out next year and it was my publisher's idea. I absolutely felt I had no interest, didn't want to do it. But I started doing my research and then I got my first character's voice. And that's what I had to uh, trust in myself. I was going to fall in love with the subject and the topic and uh, enjoy the writing process. So I think I would do that with Cahill and just read, read, read as much as I can. And hopefully he would start talking to me. And once that happens... Um, I, you know, uh, I'm I'm in love. I'm in love with what the, what I'm writing about. You know, so it would be something that you'd you'd relish to challenge. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to write uh, the life story of Michael Collins now for mm. the same age group, ten years and upwards. Yeah, and uh, I have what I suppose I really shouldn't even be saying out loud because I still think it hasn't been done. But I really wanted to do it in, in Collins's own voice. Mm. Now, I mean, I knew this was going to be challenging because I was going to be presenting him sending fellas out to kill fellas yeah. and not in a, and I was not going to romanticize that in any way, shape or form or try to convert the reader one way or the other, you know? So, but again, that's a challenge, you know, and I, and, but, and my publisher said, no, didn't want <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's kind of, but it's kind of a nest of snakes, isn't it really? Cause you're always going to yeah. get a bunch of people on Twitter, you know, lambasting you over the fact that it's not, you know, it's not true to form or it's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we should do, and I should have probably said this earlier on, we should probably explain who could call him what, to our read our listeners outside of uh, Ireland, he's a mythical hero, kind of like a Herculean hero, isn't he? Yes, that's yeah. it. Yes, yeah. No, yeah. He, he didn't. He didn't invent a hurling as a lot of people think he did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people say he went around with a hurley stick or something. You know, but I think that was really invented by the GAA. You might as well clarify <laughs> that. But uh, yeah, he was kind of a mythical hero, kind of set around uh, Bronze Age times in Ireland. And and it is funny that no one's tackled this, even in the movie sense, has tackled that type of hero in Ireland. Because I think yeah. after Braveheart, mm. it was probably the right time to do that. But no one seemed to grab the horns on that one, which I was always disappointed because I would really love to see a, a good movie about 
you know Finn McCool is another similar character yeah. or Irish heroes definitely I yeah. mean there's a, you know you've got that Irish American market would would just yeah. lap it up you know they'd say oh this yeah. is brilliant you know um, I wanted to ask you about writing and particularly um, you know how it's been a source of strength for you because I know in, in a couple of years ago you, you how you were treating for cancer and yes. uh, you, brilliant news you got through that and I'm wondering yeah. was it a was it a source of strength for you at the time did it help you get through it did you keep your mind activated <laughs> Yeah, and I would have, up to that cancer, I would have been one of these writers who, if being honest, I would say I prefer to read than write. Mm. And, you know, I don't enjoy doing first drafts. I struggle a lot with confidence. I struggle a lot when I'm writing a first draft, this voice in my head telling me the whole time, this is rubbish, this is rubbish. And I have to ignore that. So I would never have said I love writing. Um, But then I get diagnosed with cancer and I was only halfway through, actually found the lump. I'd gone over to the Maritime Museum in London in Greenwich uh, to research for chasing ghosts. And I was in the shower that night and found a lump in my armpit. And that, that's the whole thing took off there. And I went through chemo and I thought, I hoped I could write and it would keep me on straight road. And I couldn't. Chemo just absolutely was, I was my brain was mush. Um, and then I felt I'm not a writer anymore. I remember the panic opening up the manuscript when I was still in the middle of chemo. I couldn't put a sentence together and I just thought that's it. I've lost whatever it was. It's gone. And it was the scariest, scariest feeling. But the cancer diagnosis also up to that point, I'd never put anything personal up on Facebook. And for some reason, I felt absolutely moved. I just felt this out of my hands. Um, the I got the diagnosis on a Friday. And uh, Niall, my husband, wanted to go. I think World, uh, the World Rugby Union was on or something. We went out to our local. Italy was playing. That's all I remember. And Niall was watching the match. And I, for the first time ever, picked up a coaster and started writing out this. These words were just forming in my head. I've just found out in the last 24 hours that I, you know, all of this. And I realized that I absolutely wanted to write a thing up on Facebook. Otherwise, I mean, I make 30 phone calls. Hello, I've got cancer. And then you're putting the onus on the one person at a time to, you know, respond. I had to, I ran home and I was so annoyed because uh, it was such a wild time and he couldn't understand why I just sit, wouldn't sit and watch the rest of the match. And I got home and rang my mother and I said, I just need your blessing. I'm going to do this. So she was like, whatever. So I, I went and wrote the whole thing. And this just opened up. Um, I could not understand the response I got. And from a lot of you know Facebook friends I'd never met. And it was it was a, such a huge help. My family got an awful lot of comfort out of it too, and Niall. But also, it helped me as a writer. I couldn't write the book. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to be able to finish that book, Chasing Ghosts. But this was this kept me going. I could write something. I had instant readership. I had instant response. And that got me through everything. Uh, and since then, I've never looked back. And it really changed my life. And I realized I do love writing. And um, it kept me sane, you know, and even it was just writing a post on Twitter or Facebook. It got me through. It saved me. And again, then when we come to COVID, you know, Chasing Ghosts was coming out. I'd gotten through cancer. This is my big swinging carrot. I'd organized four massive launches. Uh, I bought a ball gown because this was going to be my party. You know, this book, I'm finished with cancer, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hits and I had to cancel everything. And then I'm locked down uh, and I'm in terror. You know, what on earth is going on? And again, I had a book I had to finish. And, um, you know, I hadn't got chemo, so I was able to write once I got over the initial block of fear over COVID and what's going on in the world. 
And it's just in those last, since 2018, I realized I do absolutely love writing. Uh, and I'm very grateful for cancer to, you know, sorting that out for me <laughs> of how important it is to me. For sure. And the thing is, um, you hear so many negative stories about, you know, people who kind of project themselves onto Twitter or onto Facebook. But yeah. um, I always find when it comes to that kind of thing, it can be a huge source of inspiration because yeah. you do get, you know, you will, of course, get always the the, the trolls and all that kind of thing. But you will yeah. get a massive outpouring of, uh, you know, support, not sympathy, yes. but actually support. I see it a lot. You know, on Twitter, you'll see somebody make a similar announcement to you and the unbelievable amount of response. And yeah. I just go, I always go through it for a little bit just to kind of get the vibe and I I don't think I ever see people saying anything negative. So it, it yeah. does it is always a good source of strength if you can it's all about wording it properly, which of course you obviously did. Yeah, uh yeah. Yeah, I was just, you know, I've I made friends then, mm. uh, went and met women because after my diagnosis. So, you know, a couple of months later, then they were being diagnosed. So they wrote to me and they had seen my posts. So now like I have friends for life. Um and it's it, it's just it does make a huge difference then because I would have been starting out and I'd have some English friend who I'd never met writing to tell me it's grand. You know, don't panic. You'll get yeah. your chemo. That's sometimes that's all you need is somebody to say you're able for this. You know, yeah. chemo is the idea of having chemo is terrifying. And the difference it makes when just one person says to you, you'll get through it. I got through it. You'll get through it. Um, and that's such a huge help. You know, it's priceless, actually. Yeah, you have to keep your brain occupied more even than your body. Yeah. And uh, how are you feeling now? Are you good? Yeah, uh, my energy is not what it is. And I got COVID twice, oh. which is possibly. Yeah, yeah, I know. So uh, October is going to be a busy month because October in Ireland is Children's Book Festival, which means any children's writer is usually getting up at all hours and traveling on buses and trains all over Ireland to do events. So I am um, getting lovely invitations that I've never got before to libraries and uh, yeah, Kerry and uh, up Donegal. I've never been there before. And uh, but I'm going to ha I have to make sure um, to balance all that out with days off in between. So my energy is just not what it used to be. But I suppose the joy of going to see, you know, young people oh, yeah. being so interested in what you do, you know, as you say, you kind of like you, when you're explaining there about drawing a blank on, on the writing and you kind of get that imposter syndrome. And then when you go yeah. and you just meet people who actually just think what you did was amazing, you know, you kind of yeah, it just it yes, helps, doesn't absolutely. it? I mean, you kind of go. That's the end of that syndrome for me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It can make all the difference in the world. I remember I was going to school in the Curra, and this was before cancer, and I was really tired of what was got there late. And I was taught as the Titanic I would have been talking about. And I, uh, the teacher was lovely. Uh, he come collected me and brought me through, brought me into the school. And I stood at the back of the classroom and I knew I was a mess. I'd see my my reflection as I walked in. I just looked wrecked. Makeup was gone by this stage. I'd been up since five in the morning, whatever. And I remember just standing there, just going, how am I going to even manage this? And a little girl just looked up at me and then whispered to me, I like your watch. Oh, just, I could have wept. Wow. But like children can do that. Absolutely. Know? That's fantastic. She didn't know what about me. She didn't, you know, yeah. and she just said, I like your watch. 
and that just was such a help you know wow. yeah that's brilliant it is really great and it's funny um you know because like i'm in a strong podcasting community and there's lots of people who come to me yeah. about podcasting and the biggest problem they have is and it's obviously because it's very popular is that they just don't get enough listeners and i say to yeah. people well what did you get for your last podcast episode and they say well i got 150 people and i said well well think about it imagine 150 people sitting in your sitting room saying they loved what you did yeah you know yeah, and they were kind of going oh yeah look at that in a different way now and i say yeah yeah, yeah. you know you're not joe rogan you're not going to get you know joe rogan started off at 150 but i said he's supported by a huge machine you know you're you've got 150 people who are imaginary sitting in your room saying to you i loved what you did and i, yeah. I kind of think that that's the way it is and all these mediums that we have now they're really great for just giving people a lift and taking them outside of you know maybe there are people who are disabled or maybe people who can't get out yeah. in a rural area and if you can do stuff like this i always say to them do it because it's not really about even your listeners to a point it's 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 also about yourself and I suppose, about creating yeah, yeah it's and probably the same about writing whole, isn't it yeah exactly this this needs to we you know try and fight that needs compare yourself to somebody else yeah compare your career to someone else you know you've got to just believe that what you are doing is from the heart and that you mean well and that will appeal to uh, listeners or readers as i think if you're being genuine you'll get the audience you deserve but don't be bothered about thinking you know i haven't got thousands or my books aren't selling in the mm. thousands you know you're, you're do you're not doing it for that you're doing it for the love of the initial passion you yeah. know um new projects announcements anything coming in at the moment that you can give us a hint on is there any new things that you're typing away on yeah, I just uh, met my editor. I, I wrote all year and then we met last week in the National Gallery of Dublin and she took me through her feedback on my manuscript. So this is a book due out next year and it is a story I knew nothing about. My publishers brought it to me. So basically at the height of the famine between 1848 and 1850, the workhouses in Ireland were overcrowded and an Englishman, Earl Grey, came up with this scheme that they would offer girls between the ages of 14 and 18 if they would like to leave Ireland and head off to Australia for a new life. Now, it wasn't a happy story for a lot of yeah. these girls, but anyway, that is what my book is about and it's coming out next year. Oh, next wow, autumn, and that's amazing. That sounds fantastic. And it will be a kind of a young reader's sort of yes. target yeah, again. the same age group yeah. as Chasing Goals and that, yeah. Fantastic. That sounds really interesting. Again, it's amazing, isn't it? We don't know about these stories. And yeah, it's people I like yourself. It. Yeah, yeah, it's like people like yourself. Um, a colleague of mine, I had him on a podcast episode, um, Mark Pising, and he did a book on, uh, you know, North Pole um, exploration. Oh, I love that yeah. book. Yeah. And it's about like, and loads of people just don't realize that it was about going to the north pole in an airship you know yeah <laughs> like, yeah you know, i've never heard of that before yeah, yeah. and i'd re researched the arctic i mm. never knew about that yeah it's an it incredible, incredible story book. it was hidden hidden amongst kind of you know the, the black art of writing and knowing the history of fascism and all that kind of thing yes. that, that's where it went down the it went down the unfortunate path where whereas really it was it was a story that definitely needed to be told which moves me on to my last question what are you reading watching to listening at the moment <laughs> Right. Well, I have two books here. Normally, mm. I try to just read one book at a time, but um, I'm reading Fergus Fleming. His dad was Ian Fleming, and he has written the most amazing uh, history books. And he's got he's real funny. So he's written a book called Barrow's Boys. So this nice. is about the, the, the fellows like going off John Franklin and whatever, going off trying to find the, the last 300 miles of the Northwest Passage. Wow. Yeah, because cool, yeah. Barrow was uh, an Englishman completely obsessed about the Northwest Passage mm -hmm. and wanted mm -hmm. it to be a British find. Right. And alongside that, I found out about this book from one of the the pages on Facebook to do with uh, John Franklin and Scott and all that. It's the Spectral Arctic. 
everything. To, it's now it's very scholarly. It's very academic. Yeah. But this is about any ghost story whatsoever to do with the Arctic. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ghost fans would love that. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. So it's a good it's a good reference book. In other words. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. TV, yeah. anything on television? I know we have such an array of stuff. Is it difficult to when you're working on the? Oh, I love stuff like um, I don't know. If you, uh, I love reading Anne, Cle- Anne, Anne Cleave, but I love the the shows, Harper books, uh, crime stuff, Vera Shetland. I absolutely love them, and I love Australian um stuff too. So I'm, I'm watching Five Bedrooms at the minute, okay. uh, which is five single people buying a house together and just <laughs> their stories. Okay. Uh, I really yeah. do love Australian yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll watch, I'll watch stuff like the Dairy Girls over and over oh, and yeah. over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's classic TV. You know, we never thought we would get something as good as Father Ted and yet the Dairy, Dairy Girls came yeah. along and just they just, you know, thumbed yeah. the nose. Uh, it's funny you talk about Shetland because my wife is on holidays with me and when she found out, I can't think of the lead character's name when he was leaving, I just... I kind of stabbed, I did a Brutus-style execution of it. I said to her, oh, I see your man is leaving uh, Shetlands. She's like, what, what, what? Oh, she was running around uh, trying to get, the, you know, to find it on the internet. So she was devastated that he was gone. Well, I, I did not know that either, uh, Ken. Oh, there what? you go. I didn't know that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's on, on every news channel. I, I don't know. How, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's, I, it's like she did say to me, it doesn't impact on the story whatsoever. But And she thinks he's probably going to come back to it, actually. So yeah, I don't know what so. the story That's, is. But, um, <laughs> I don't, and I don't watch anything like that because I've no, I, I'm no interest in those murder mystery stuff, you know. Um, okay. She watches the one as someone set in wales as well I, again oh yeah 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 it's so, grace uh, yeah. oh there's a load of them and I, yeah we've worked our way through all of them i love them yeah I've great si- escape yeah science fiction is great for me and i love as i say all those kind of creepy not i don't like your slasher type movies i don't watch them no, sort of nonsense no. at all like i went to see um nope last night which is very popular in the cinema at the okay. moment and i liked it but i could see loads of people in the audience were going nope <laughs> like, that's some some guy some guy was walking by classic Irish guy and he just said well he said the name is right for he said if I want to tell people about it he said <laughs> so, but I loved it I thought it was brilliant anyway so it's, I, yeah. it gets my thumbs up anyway do you have a web page that people can get you on yes uh, I have I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter and then it's www.nicolapierce.com uh, okay. I think. <laughs> And also my publisher is the O'Brien Press. So that I have was... a page and all my books, are, uh, the information is up on the O'Brien Press. Great. That yeah. was my next question. I always recommend people to go to the local bookshop and rather yeah. than the big guys and get support the local bookshops. And, 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 you know, we can order them from all over the world nowadays. Nicola, thanks a million for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Ken. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks. And I'm chuffed that you actually read Jason Ghost. Oh, sure. I've it's got not all, always the case. You I've, know? I've got a few more ordered. <laughs> so I'll be, put, I'll be taking, taking <laughs> my time going through them. <laughs> Guys, you've been listening to a comfortable spot. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to us today. And we will see you real soon for the next one. Take care, y'all. Bye bye.